Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, January 29th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off today with the article, Victims' Names Released in Revolver Crash That Killed Four in Grundy County. Four people were killed Friday morning, three of them young children, when the driver of a 15-passenger van lost control in icy conditions on U.S. Highway 20 in Grundy County. Four of the 14 occupants were ejected from the vehicle. None was wearing a seatbelt or was in a child restraint. The Iowa State Patrol reported Saturday that Irvin J. Borntrager, 22, and Emma Borntrager, 4, Rebecca Borntrager, 2, and Marilyn Borntrager, 1, died in the 6.35 a.m. crash. Injured in the accident were... Milan Borntrager, 27, who was taken to Grundy County Memorial Hospital. Fanny Borntrager, 25, transported to Grundy County Memorial Hospital. Edna Borntrager, 21, taken to the University of Iowa Hospitals. Jacob Borntrager, 1, taken to Grundy County Memorial Hospital. And Joseph Borntrager, 1, taken to the University of Iowa Hospitals. Also injured were Mary Hirschberger, 29, transported to Mercy One Medical Center in Waterloo, and Jacob Jake Hirschberger, 26, taken to Grundy County Memorial Hospital. All of the victims are from Delhi, a city in Delaware County. An earlier report listed Irvin Borntrager, 3, of Delhi, as being taken to Grundy County Memorial Hospital. The driver of the 2002 Chevy Express was Sarah E. Werner, 33, of Hopkinton, also in Delaware County. No other names of those injured or killed have been released. The state patrol previously reported that an adult and three children under five were killed and multiple others were injured. The state patrol reported that the single vehicle accident happened as the van was westbound near the Wellberg exit and mile marker 189. The driver lost control on a 100% snow and ice covered roads and the the vehicle entered the median. The van rolled over, ejecting four occupants and came to rest in eastbound lanes. Numerous areas agencies assisted the scene. The crash remains under investigation. On to another article, name released in Waterloo Homicide, ongoing dispute preceded fatal stabbing. A Waterloo man who died in a Thursday morning stabbing has been sought by police for an assault at a liquor store hours earlier, according to the authorities. On Friday, Waterloo police identified the deceased as a 56-year-old Mac Bass. Officers responding to a vandalism report in the 500 block of Dawson Street around 1.45 a.m. Thursday found Bass on the sidewalk suffering from a stab wound. He was taken to a local hospital where he was pronounced dead. Court records and police records indicate that Bass had been involved in an ongoing dispute with a woman who lived at the address in the weeks leading up to his death. Details at the heart of the dispute weren't immediately available to Bass, who lived on West 3rd Street, and Katie King, who were both arrested in a confrontation outside a Dawson Street home where she was staying January 13th, records indicate. The two were allegedly involved in a scuffle. Bass told police that he was attempting to leave when King grabbed his coat and pulled, 
During the tussle, Bass broke a window on King's Subaru Forester with a ring on his hand, and King scratched his face. Bass was charged with criminal mischief for the car damage, and King was arrested for assault causing bodily injury. A restraining order was issued. Around 11.50 p.m. Wednesday, the two apparently ran into each other at a Broadway liquor about half a block away from Dawson Street address. King, who was, a male who was with a male acquaintance, was struck in the face and an ambulance was called. Bass left before police arrived and the officer started paperwork for his arrest, according to police records. Then, around 1.45 a.m., Bass allegedly told King that he was coming over, leading to a confrontation outside the Dawson Street house. Bass used a knife to puncture a tire in King's Subaru. An altercation between Bass and the male acquaintance followed, resulting in Bass suffering his fatal wound, according to the police. No charges have been filed in the fatal stabbing, and authorities continue to investigate. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Waterloo Police Detective Division, 319-291-4340, extension 3. Now let's go on to a slightly less morbid article. Summer is coming. 35th annual boat RV vacation show returns to Cedar Falls. Outside the, outside, the weather was frightful, but inside the UNI dome, as snow fell across the Cedar Valley, thoughts turned to warm, sunny days ahead. The 35th annual Iowa Boat, RV, and Vacation Show returned to Cedar Falls this weekend to show case campers, canoes, pontoons, and other products from more than 50 vendors. The show continues from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday. Most of the vendors are promoting sales as they try to make room for 2023 inventory. Steve Miller, sales manager for Payne's RV in Waterloo, said most of his camper models on the floor are from 2022, and he's offering the best pricing. Something new buyers will notice this year is the amount of solar panels on the campers. Miller said that solar energy can power the battery, interior lights, and various outlets, depending on how much power they generate. Most people have never been to a, a dealership, he said. This helps them understand what's inside the campers. During the COVID-19 pandemic, he noted many people became first-time campers to spend with family while social distancing. It was a perfect storm for the industry, Miller said. Sales during the pandemic were also great for Hartwick Marina manager Greg Vance. Hartwick Marina is based in Delhi, southeast of Manchester. His family bought the marina in 2020, and they rent and sell boats and pontoons, service boats, and resell-related products. At the show, the marina is featuring four brands of watercraft, each offering rebates of $2,500 to $3,000. He said this year large tritunes are popular. A tritune has a third tube beneath its deck, where a pontoon only has two. Vance said his goal is to make one quality sale at the show and to create a lot of connections. We can teach people to have more fun in the outdoors and help them enjoy life more, he said. Now on to Iowa Dems choose heart. Party trying to bounce back from poor results in recent elections. Rita Hart, a former candidate for Congress and lieutenant governor, 
and one of the last Democrats to represent a rural district in the legislature, was elected Saturday by fellow Iowa Democrats to lead the party. Elected to a two-year term during a virtual meeting of the Iowa Democratic Party Leadership Committee, Hart assumes control of the state party as Democrats are reeling from poor election outcomes in 2014, 2016, 2020, and 2022. In the state, and as the party is fresh off its presidential caucuses, being stripped of its, en of its enviable first-in-the-nation status. Hart, 66, of Wheatland, did not, did not speak after her election, but during her remarks ahead of the vote pledged to focus on primarily on winning elections. In her candidacy letter to state party leaders, she highlighted a need for Democrats to raise more money in order to build a stronger campaign apparatus. Hart noted that she twice won elections in a state house district carried by Donald Trump and outperformed Joe Biden more than other Democratic congressional candidates. She said that she has gained even more perspective on what it will take for Iowa Democrats to win elections again while serving as chair of the Clinton County Democrats over the past year. I've seen, a gra I've seen at a grassroots level the kind of support that our country parties need in order to work more effectively, Hart said. I'm under no illusions that this will be easy, and I know that it will take time, but I am heartened by the support that I have heard from the state party leadership committee and from folks across the state. Hart succeeded, succeeds state representative Ross Wilburn from Ames, who stepped down after serving as party chair for the past two years. Wilburn was the first black Iowan to serve as a major party state chair. I know that we have made some important strides since January of 2021, even if it doesn't feel like it, Wilburn told party members during the meeting. We did our best to fight for a better future for every Iowan. Hart was selected over two other candidates, Brittany Rowland, 32, who moved to Iowa in 2019 to work on Bernie Sanders' campaign, presidential campaign, and also worked on Eddie Mauro's U.S. Senate campaign in 2020, and Sarah Trone Garrett's state legislative campaign in 2022. In the latter, Trone Garrett defeated former Iowa Senate President Jake Chapman, and Bob Krause, a 73 a former state legislator who ran for the U.S. Senate nomination in 2010 and 2016 and for governor in 2014. Krauss is a former Waterloo resident who served on the school board and ran for mayor. Hart received 34 votes, Roland 14, and Krauss won. Hart served in the Iowa Senate and was a Democratic gubernatorial candidate Fred Hubble's running mate in 2018, losing to Kim Reynolds, and Lieutenant Governor Adam Gregg by three percentage points. Hart later lost her 2020 congressional race to Republican to Republican U.S. Representative Marie Annette Miller Meeks by a historical close six votes. Hart is now serving as chair of the Clinton County Democratic Party. In an email to members of the State Central Committee, Hart wrote that she has never previously considered leading the party, but that she cares deeply about Iowa Democrats' success. 
My focus is squarely on helping our party begin winning elections again. With that focus on winning in mind, I have worked to put together a series of proposals on the governance of our party and structure of staff that will put IDPF's focus squarely on supporting our elected leaders and candidates for office, Hart wrote. The email included a document she called her ma- her her mandate for change that emphasizes the need for the state party to raise money so that it can adequately invest in candidates and amplify a statewide message, including hiring a staffer to manage online fundraising as part of a proposed small small dollar donor program. The plan also calls for hiring positions dedicated to content to content generation, digital and field organization, and a data director to manage and improve the party's voter database. Instead of starting with four organizers covering 20 plus counties each, we will begin with organizers having responsibility for only a couple of contiguous counties and responsible for working that turf all off year aggressively, Hart wrote. This program will grow to cover more counties as more funding becomes available and serves as a pilot for an eventual 99-county year-round program. Hart proposed prioritizing smaller swing counties in a statewide race, as well as counties that needed additional capacity to grow, but have shown clear signs of committed leadership. As for the Democratic Iowa caucuses, Hart, during a virtual forum hosted by the Southwest Iowa Democrats, did not say whether she thinks the party should hold an unsanctioned caucus in defiance of the Democratic National Committee, as some have suggested. None of the three candidates for state chair during Saturday's meeting mentioned the caucuses during their remarks. State party members spent the first two hours of the meeting arguing over newly created constituency groups, one for Arab Americans and one for environmental and climate change issues that were not formally created and recognized in time to vote in Saturday's leadership election. Now on to a national article. Nuclear strike chief seeks cancer review of launch officers. The top Air Force general in charge of the nation's air and ground launched nuclear missiles has requested an official investigation into the number of officers who reported blood cancer diagnoses after serving at Malstrom Air Force Base in Montana. The illnesses became publicly known recently after the Associated Press obtained a military brief that at least nine missileers, those officers serving in underground bunkers near silo-based Minuteman III intercontinental ballistic missiles and responsible for turning launch keys if ordered, reported diagnoses of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. One of the officers died. General Thomas A. Basir, commander of the Air Force Global Strike Command, which is responsible for all the silo-based and aircraft-launched nuclear warheads, said in a statement Friday that he requested the U.S. Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine conduct a formal assessment into the reported cancers. Air Force Global Strike Command and our Air Force takes the responsibility to protect airmen and guardians incredibly seriously, and their safety and health is always my top priority, Basir said. 
While we continue to work through this process, service members and their dependents, as well as former service members who may have concerns or have questions, are encouraged to speak with their healthcare providers. Air Force spokeswoman Anne Stefanek added in a statement Saturday that the review will go beyond the launch officers initially identified. Similar nuclear missile facilities are located at Minute Air Force Base in North Dakota and F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming. General Basir asked for an assessment of the risks to all airmen and guardians involved with the missile community who may be at risk, Stefnik said. The Air Force told the AP on January 22nd that its medical teams were looking into the issue. Basir's request elevates that into a formal review conducted by the U.S. Air Force School of Aerospace and Medicine. We are working together to create courses of action involving moving forward. We are committed to remaining transparent during this process, and we pledge to maintain an open dialogue with members and their families and stakeholders throughout, Basir said. Over the last week, more missileers who served at Malstrom or their families reached out to the AP to share their experiences with diagnoses of blood cancer and other types of cancer. Concern about the cancers was raised by a Space Force officer in a January briefing to his unit. Many missileers transferred into the Space Force after it was created. At least 455 Space Force officers, including its highest-ranking officer, new Chief of Space Operations General Chance Saltzman, served as missileers. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which according to the American Cancer Society, affects an estimated 19 out of every 100,000 people in the U.S. annually, is a blood cancer that uses the body's infection-fighting lymph system to spread. Now let's go on to the article, Freedom's Daughter Elevates Narrative About Largely Unknown Historic Black Heroines. Two disparate exhibits on display at the Waterloo Center for the Arts converge to create a dialogue between portraits of largely unknown black suffrage heroines and artwork created by black contemporary artists. Freedom's Daughters, a series of 24 portraits by Cedar Rapids artist Kathy Schumacher, features unsung black heroines from suffrage to civil rights. We Still Rise showcases several sculptures, two-dimensional and performance art pieces from the center's permanent collection. Both exhibits will be displayed until March 19th. As a curator, I feel strong about presenting artwork that intersects, that the community can experience ideas and narratives to grapple with, and we don't shy away from that, said WCA's Shawane Page, noting that the exhibit's further conversation about Black determination while highlighting Black artists' contributions and perspectives. Schumacher, a largely self-taught artist, originally planned to focus her artwork on the 100th anniversary of women's rights to vote in 2020. Then, COVID and everything was cancelled. I started looking into suffrage more deeply and thinking about painting portraits of unknown suffragettes in Iowa. As I did the research, I learned that many African-American women were very active in suffrage, but were pushed out of the movement. I didn't realize that, said the artist, who is Caucasian. 
She has studied port- portraiture in workshops with nationally known artists and taken art classes at Mount Mercy and Kirkwood Community Colleges. She prefers working in large format using charcoal, oil, and acrylic. These portraits focus on black heroines from the 19th century to the modern civil rights activists. Schumacher credits the collection's title to a book of the same name by author Lynn Olson, who was influential in developing the exhibition. The public recognizes the names of such important historical figures as Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and Rosa Parks. The many impactful black women are largely unrecognized, including Josephine Saint-Pierre Ruffin, co-founding editor of the first national newspaper published by and for black women. Nani Helen Burroughs, the founder of the first black-owned and operated girls' school. Unida Zelma Blackwell, the first woman elected major in Mississippi. And Daisy Bates, the force behind the first high school integration in Little Rock, Arkansas. Initially, she was uncomfortable about possible backlash from the black community that there's this white woman who has taken it on herself to do something on this piece of history. So the artist spoke with officials at the African American Museum of Iowa and Cedar Rapids. Kathy didn't know about the history and educated herself about these women and elevated their stories for a broader audience, Page said. Freedom's Daughters also features quotes from each woman read by Cameroonian-American artist Akiwi Niji, who is also director of school and community relations for Waterloo Community Schools. The portraits were first exhibited in 2020 at the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art. Schumacher has been gratified by the mostly positive public reaction. I feel like I've accomplished something by getting these names of the women out there. The WCA companion exhibit, We Still Rise, features a life-size sculpture of Lorianne Dale, Dig Deep, as well as a series of silver gelatin prints, Million Woman March. The march took place October 25th, 1997 in Philadelphia, with the overarching theme of family unity and what it means to be an African-American woman in America. Madai Taylor's 100 Years of Lynching in the American Spirit made from a cotton cord and an Iowa, an Iowa earth on roofing paper dates from 2015 in the WCA permanent collection. The final piece is a recording of a 2022 Vertigo performance at WCA related to branding and slavery along with items used for the performance piece, A Seed of Empathy by Isaiah Patton. Now on to a different article, Ice Ice Baby, Ice Harvest Festival is living history fun at Big Woods Lake. History will come alive Saturday at the Ice Harvest Festival. That's if the weather holds. Cold and clear, that's what the forecast is looking like for now. That's good for ice harvesting. Our fingers are crossed. We're excited about sharing this tradition with the public, said Julie Huffman Klinkowitz, curator at the Cedar Falls Historical Society. The festival is from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Big Woods Lake on North Shore, 1501 East Lake Street. A small crew from the Amish community near Fairbank will demonstrate ice harvesting from 10 to 10.45 a.m. 
and 1 to 1.45 p.m. They will cut blocks of ice, which will then be lifted from the frozen lake. The Amish continue to harvest ice as a means for keeping food cold. If weather turns dangerously cold or inclement, the alternate date is February 11th. The event is free and open to the public, sponsored by Cedar Falls Community Credit Union, Western Home Communities, Witham Auto Centers, Thrivent Financial. In-kind donations will be made can in-kind donations have been made by Black Hawk County Conservation and UNI Outdoors. Free will donations will benefit the Cedar Falls Historical Society and Ice House Museum, which is which observed its hundredth anniversary last year. Also planned during the festival are a variety of children's activities, such as snowman building contest, as well as ice fishing demonstrations and blacksmithing demonstration by Uncle Stinky and Josh Patterson. Snowshoes and cross-country skis will be available for a small rental fee. Chef Jessica Foster of Moment in Time will offer concessions for a free will donation while supplies last. About 24 volunteers devote hours to making the festival happen, and a noon break in activities is planned to allow volunteers to grab lunch, Huffman Klinkowitz said. In addition, there will be a native animals and fur exhibit from the Black Hawk County Conservation. We have a similar exhibit at the Ice House Museum. It's interesting for people who aren't familiar with native animals in this area to learn about their habitat, Huffman Klinkowitz said. Our mission is to, tr- is to preserve the history and educate the public about the history of Cedar Falls. The Ice House Museum is one of our biggest museums, and it's, and it's a unique museum, the only one in the nation, that tells the story of ice harvesting in an actually round ice house. People may wonder what it's like carving ice from the river, and it's dangerous. Too dangerous now for us to even harvest ice from the Cedar River, because it hardly ever completely freezes over, she explained. Although still hazardous, demonstrating ice harvesting at Big Woods Lake is safer. Snow has been removed a week or so in advance from the portion of the lake where harvesting will take place. This encourages the ice to get thicker in freezing temperatures. The next ice harvest festival won't take place until 2025. We are doing two years on, one year off, so we won't be doing this festival next year. People should get out there and see it this year. The Ice House Museum opens May 6th for the season. Email cfhistory at cfu.net or call 319-266-5149 for more information about joining the Historical Society. Now let's go on to Deja Vu, CF Council to talk again Monday about 6th and Main Street roundabout possibility. The prospect of transforming the Main and 6th Street intersection into a roundabout has been researched in the past but never progressed beyond the chatter. The City Council convenes Monday at 6 p.m. for a special meeting inside City Hall at 220 Clay Street to hear again the pros and cons and the implications of moving forward with a single-lane roundabout versus a a signaled intersection there. Councillor Daryl Cruz asked January 17th to have a design consultant, Foth Engineering, and Public Works Department dig into the possibility and ultimately referred the discussion to committee, 
after receiving the necessary support from councillors Dustin Ganfield, Dave Sires, and Gil Schultz. Under consideration will be a roundabout with four legs, or one with three, where the portion of 6th Street leading to State Street would be closed off to Main Street traffic. The roundabout would be part of the larger, costlier-than-anticipated $300 million Main Street reconstruction project that the Council awarded to Peterson Contracts Inc. last month in a 4-3 vote. Construction is expected to begin in the spring and will include work to transform the 12th and 18th Streets and Searley Boulevard intersections into roundabouts as well. If councillors decide to move forward Monday with a roundabout at 6th Street, the final approval likely wouldn't happen until a future meeting in the form of a major change order. Officials will weigh various factors, including safety, upfront cost, long-term savings, traffic flow, necessary right-of-way, potential parking implications, overall design, project timeline, and other ramifications that might come up that might come as a result of the proposal being brought to the floor at the 11th hour. The last request, the last minute request is why a special meeting had to be called. Among the other changes people can expect with Main Street's reconstruction is going from a four to a three lane corridor with travel lanes in each direction and a center turn lane from six streets to north to just north of University Avenue. A major part of the project will be the replacement of the underground infrastructure like sanitary sewer and water mains described as being in bad condition and more than 100 years old. Upon completion of the construction in 2025, officials say the future roadway will be designed with better pavement conditions, lower ongoing upkeep and operational costs, enhanced safety for all modes of transportation, improved traffic flow, enhanced bicycle and pedestrian mobility, and better support for economic growth and revitalization. The council has a, had a, has a second meeting scheduled at 7 p.m., but it's slated to be closed as session as per- permissible under Iowa law. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, January 29th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Rita M. Donovan. Rita M. Donovan passed away peacefully on January 20th, 2023 in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Rita was born in 1932 to Raymond and Julia Hogan. She attended school in the Independence area. Rita married Richard Donovan on February 22nd, 1950. Rita spent most of her time taking care of her family. She worked at Chamberlain's and Satori Hospital. Rita enjoyed many hobbies. Her artwork is all over the country. She was an avid bowler and played lots of golf. Rita enjoyed spending her winters in Myrtle Beach. While there, she enjoyed golfing with family and friends. Rita is survived by two sons, Patrick of Asheville, North Carolina, and Michael from La Crosse, Wisconsin. Five grandchildren, Dakota, Dustin, Caitlin, Shane, and Nicole. Six great-grandchildren, Ethan, Sydney, Lily, Ella, Dakota P., and Zane. She is preceded in death by her parents' husband, Richard Donovan, a son, Timothy, 
six brothers, and three sisters. There will not be a visitation as per Rita's wishes. Cremation has taken place at a service will be held at a later date. Thomas Tom L. Eastman Thomas Tom L. Eastman, 75, of Cedar Falls, died January 27, 2023, at Cedar Valley Hospice Home in Waterloo. He was born December 23, 1947, the son of Lewis and Mercina Eastman in Waterloo. He graduated from Cedar Falls High School in the class of 1967. Tom enlisted in the U.S. Navy, proudly serving his country from 1967 to 1971. On August 15, 1980, he was united in marriage to Carol Burrow in Cedar Falls. Tom worked as an electrician at John Deere before changing careers and joining Martin Bros in Cedar Falls. He worked for Martin Bros for 32 years, retiring in 2015 as Solutions Center Director. Tom was an avid fisherman, enjoying fishing trips with his buddies to Alaska, Canada, and the Great Lakes. Most of all, he loved time spent with his family. Tom was a member of the Blessed Sacrament Catholic Church in Waterloo. He is survived by his wife, Carol of Cedar Falls, his son, Richard Overturf of Cedar Rapids, his daughter, Robin Eastman of Cedar Falls, four grandkids, Tyler Overturf of Coralville, Brianna Overturf of Cedar Rapids, Alexander Overturf of Cedar Rapids, Alyssa Overturf of Cedar Rapids, a great-grandson, Tyler Overturf of Coralville, and three sisters, Bonnie Glazer of Cedar Falls, Janine Rogers of Cedar Falls, and Jackie Reisinger of Hiawatha. Tom was preceded in death by his parents, two brothers-in-law, Alice Ro Ace Rogers, and Bob Reisinger. Mass of Christian Burial will be 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, at Blessed Sacrament Catholic Church in Waterloo. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service at the church. Memorials may be directed to the family. Online guestbook at www.richardsonfuneralservice.com Janice Abel Janice was born at Allen Hospital in Waterloo, Iowa the daughter of George and Faye Abel. She grew up in LaPorte City. Janice received degrees in music education, taught music, band, and guidance in Iowa public schools. She began at UNI as hall director, opening dancer in the late 1960s. Following graduate school at Indiana University, Bloomington, she returned as director of the orientation program then becoming the first director of academic advising services. In that 20-year career, her writing experiences appeared in professional student services journals. After retirement, she turned to fiction writing and published a collection of fantasy short stories. She also interviewed several retired women and published Community Shapers. She and her sister documented their childhood living in LaPorte City, close to their parents' Wishmore Cafe. Janice played the trumpet all her life, from fourth grade until the present. Janice became a professional pastel artist, competing, completing many beautiful works. According to Janice, while music has never been a part of my public life in Cedar Falls, it runs deeply in my personal life. I view the arts as essential to our being, bringing out the best in us, 
The arts enable me to understand life as an art form that each of us are shaping. Janice is survived by her friend and partner, Mary Lou Hunt, and sister, Ruth Ann Schneck, a niece, nephews, and cousins. Services will be held at a later date. Dal Van Hove Shoe Funeral Home. Memorials may be directed to the Northeast Iowa Food Bank. Hearst Center for the Arts, Cedar Bend Humane Society, or the University of Northern Iowa Foundation. Lisa Boyson McKinstry. Lisa Boyson McKinstry, 69, of Cedar Falls, died on Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, at Western Home Communities, Martin Suites. She was born on April 18th, 1953, in Cedar Falls, the daughter of Dale Herbert and Marilyn Moss Boyson. She graduated from Cedar Falls High School, then received her BS from the University of Northern Iowa. She married Doug Johnson in Cedar Falls, later divorcing. She then married Stephen McKinstry in Cedar Falls and later divorced. She worked for the Waterloo Community School District for 25 years before retiring in 2015. Lisa is survived by her children, Brandon Johnson of Burbank, California, Chivas Keller of Norwalk, Iowa, and Emily Cadleck of Waterloo, Iowa. Grandchildren, Derek, Ali, Aubrey, and Dallas Keller, and Emerson and Julian Cadleck, sisters, Connie DeHaan of Cedar Falls, Iowa, and Barb Clements of Greenwood in Indiana, and several aunts, uncles, and cousins. She was preceded in death by her parents. Memorial services will be 11 a.m. Wednesday, February 1st, 2023 at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Cedar Falls. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m., Tuesday at Richardson Funeral Service. Inurnment at Fairview Cemetery in Cedar Falls on a later date. Memorials may be directed to the Lisa McKinstry Memorial Fund through the Waterloo Schools Foundation, which will support the advancement of the student experience with the Waterloo Community School District and allow students to further their passions, life skills, and other interests to become leaders and innovators of our world. Online condolences may be left at www.richardsonfuneralservice.com. Now, let's move over to the sports section, starting with some college men's basketball. You and I cannot overcome mistakes, sharpshooting sycamores. Mistakes and poor perimeter defense cost Northern Iowa in a 79-71 Missouri Valley Conference loss at the hands of Indiana State Sycamores on Saturday. UNI head coach Ben Jacobson cited the Panthers' errors as the biggest factors in the loss. We just made some mistakes tonight that put us in tough spots, Jacobson said. A couple of them were defensively. We, ne- we were needing to get to the right guys, the shooters. We let Zach Hobbs get going a little bit. His first one was that one we should have taken away. Jacobson continued and highlighted a pair of breakdowns in the Panthers' performance which led to the game getting away from them. It was one of those games where we needed a little more communication, just a little more determination to lock in, Jacobson said. We play hard, we fought hard, and we battled off a couple of runs, but a little more discipline and determination today, and we get the job done. 
you and I appeared to be pulling away from the Sycamores in the first eight minutes of action as the Panthers got out to an 18-10 lead. Eight points from Michael Duax allowed the Panthers to build their lead as the redshirt freshman hits his first four field goal attempts of the game. However, the Sycamores responded with a three-point barrage. Between 11 minutes and 24 seconds and 5 minutes and 4 seconds of the first half, Indiana State connected on four triples, three of which came from junior guard Zach Hobbs to erase the Panthers' lead. Hobbs' third triple spark, third triple sparked a, a 16-4 for Indiana State, which allowed the Sycamores to take a 39-33 lead with two minutes remaining before halftime. The Sycamores finished their their run with seven three-pointers in the contest. Jacobson credited the Sycamores' final five three-pointers of the first half for kick-starting Indiana's state offense. That may have been the game, Jacobson said, that stretch right there. Shooting just five of 13 from the field since the halfway point of the half, you and I managed to go on a 6-0 run in the final minute of the, of the frame to tie the game at 39-39 at the break. Bowen Boren connected on his first three-pointer of the game with 50 seconds to go and connected on a free throw to convert a four-point play. With three seconds remaining, Landon Wolf picked Cooper Nessie's pocket and threw down a dunk on the fast break to complete the run. At halftime, Dwax led the Panthers with, a 13, with 13 points after connecting on his first six field goal attempts. UNI forward James Betts connected on a triple at the 7 minutes and 24 second mark of the second half to give the Panthers their first lead since the 5 minute mark of the first half. UNI's lead did not last long, however, as Indiana State scored 10 points over the next 3 minutes while UNI managed just 4. Indiana State maintained its 4 point lead as the Panthers and Sycamores traded baskets from the 13 minute 7 mark to the 7 minutes 39 second mark of the second half. Trailing 64 to 60, Jacobson called a timeout with 7 minutes and 30 seconds after the Sycamores cashed on their 11th three-pointer of the game. The Panthers failed to close the gap for the next 6 minutes as the Sycamores kept them at an arm's length. Indiana State pulled ahead 73 to 68 as Xavier Bledson converted on a three-point play with a one minute and 58 seconds remaining in regulation. Bledson's points proved the difference as the Panthers could not close the gap despite a Wolf three-pointer with one minute and eight seconds remaining in the regulation. The Sycamores went six of six from the free throw line in the final 18 seconds of the game to close out the eight point 79-71 win. Up next, the Panthers head south to take on Drake Bulldogs in the Knapp Center on Wednesday at 8 p.m. According to Jacobson, the key for the Panthers moving forward is learning as much as they can from Saturday. Now on to high school boys basketball. AP's Thomas breaks father's career three-point record. The Applington Parkersburg boys basketball career three-pointers made record stood for 25 years. Five years after the combined school opened in 1992, Falcons head coach Aaron Thomas set the record with 146 three-pointers in his high school career before a four-year career at Drake. 
On Tuesday, Thomas's record fell as Afflington Parkerberg Jr. Gavin Thomas, Thomas's middle son, hit his 147th and 148th three-pointers against in a narrow overtime loss to the Gladbrook Rhinebeck. Gavin said that he did not think about the record in the moment because it was a close game, but he circled Aaron's records at the start of his career. It has been a goal of mine for a while to break three-point records here, Gavin said. I have to give credit to my teammates for finding me when I get open and trusting me to make those shots. After making 51 and after making 51 and 54 three-pointers in his freshman and junior season, Gavin knew that he would have a chance at the record this season. As the Falcons sprinted out a 14-0 record, Gavin connected on 39 of 82 three-point attempts, a 4-of-6 performance from, the from beyond the perimeter against the Rebels pushed Gavin past his father's mark and into the top spot in Falcons history. It feels great knowing that we have a lot of team success as well as breaking the record, Gavin said. Most importantly, the team success. Aaron said he knew his record was in a whole lot of trouble entering the season. In addition to Gavin, AP senior Garrett Hempen entered the season with 112 career three-pointers and now sits at 141 after 29 triples in the first 15 games of the season. As the head coach of the Falcons, Thomas said he hopes none of his records stand for very long and loves to see his players' names in the record books. All records are meant to be broken, Aaron said, but to have your own son do it is extra special. Aaron explained that seeing his son break his record is extra special because he knows the hard work and time which Gavin put in to become the player he is today. But is there a secret to the Thomas perimeter shooting? Aaron offered an answer. I think repetition, Aaron said. There is no substitution for being in the gym. Basketball is a game where you have to put in time and effort. There's only one way to become a better shooter, and it's through repetition. Gavin got his reps through shoot-around sessions with his dad that started all the way back when he was in kindergarten. The younger Thomas joked, the younger Thomas joked it started before he could even hold a basketball. He would always rebound for me and give me pointers on my shot, Gavin said. That helped me, making sure my feet are straight towards the basket, keeping your elbows in, my elbow would get out, and he would always correct me on that. He would make me start in closer at the free throw line. That helped me become the shooter that we see now. Outside of his dead-eye shooting, those shoot-arounds provided Gavin with the cherished memories of time spent with his father. It is special knowing that he played at the college level, Gavin said. Then he play, Then he has been my coach ever since then. It is a great time to play for him. He expects a lot out of me, and I feed off of that. However, Aaron said that he probably appreciates those times in the gym more than Gavin does because they brought back fond memories of his own childhood and going to the old Parkersburg gym, High School gym with his father, Ed Thomas. I am on the other end now, Aaron said. My dad did all those things with me when he was the athletic director. To be on the other side of that coin, as the parent, you see how special it is to share those moments with your kids. In the future, Gavin said he hopes to provide more opportunities to reminisce on those special memories with more broken records. I have been thinking about passing a couple of his dad's records, Gavin said. I would like to become more than just that record holder here at AP. 
Another one I have in mind this year is the season three-point record. In the future, career scoring. Now on to high school wrestling. West's Cooper Paxton claims MVC crown. Linmar of Marion was the clear winner Saturday during the Mississippi Valley Conference Tournament at West Waterloo. The Lions put 233 team points on the board and three wrestlers on the top podium, followed by Cedar Rapids Prairie at 214. Linmar saw Malik Debrao at 113, Kane Naktegeborn at 138, and Grant Kress at 152 win the individual crowns. Debao edged Career Falls' Evan Simpson 3-0 to win his title. Naktaborn received a medical forfeit win over Jake Mitchell of Iowa City High in the 138 final, and Kress scored a technical fall over Eric Rinderknecht of Cedar Rapids, Washington, 25-10 in 5 minutes and 27 seconds to win. Nate Fish at 120, Braden Park at 132, and Tate Naktaborn at 182 all finished second. Iowa State recruit Tate Nachtaborn dropped an anticipated showdown with Iowa recruit Gabe Arnold in the 182 final. Arnold won 3-2 in tiebreakers. According to Linmar head coach Doug Stryker, events like these are crucial to ironing out mistakes and finding areas to improve on as they get us ready to go to head into the regional duels. I think we're coming here to figure out what we're going what we do well. It's the little things we've got to fix this time of year. It's a matter of fixing those little things, Stryker said. As for Metro teams, Waterloo West's Cooper Paxton claimed the 145-pound title with an 11-5 decision victory against Casey Kelly from Cedar Rapids Prairie. I take a lot of pride in representing Waterloo in everything I do. I take a lot of pride in wearing the W on my chest, considering there's a legacy at West High for wrestling. Paxton said, so there's a little pressure, but overall, I just stay focused on my matches and hopefully win. Paxton attributed the win to not only hard work, but also to the dedication of his coaches. For his part, Waterloo West coach Brad Moss said that Paxton has already proven his worth on the team, but that he has gotten better as the challenge escalates. I think that he really controlled his opponents in all of his matches, and I think he's gotten a lot better throughout the year, and I think that the later we go on here with the competition, the better he's getting, which is awesome to see, which is testimony to him and how hard he's working and how he's doing, and how he's living, doing all the little things right. Cedar Falls took sixth with 132 points, with Simpson's runner-up finish at 113, the Tigers' top finish. Drew Campbell added a third place at 220, pinning Asher Smith of Cedar Rapids Kennedy in 1 minute and 22 seconds for third. Kane Shimp at 126, Drew Gerds at 182, and Ian Bowenkamp at 195 all finished fourth. In Des Moines, Waterloo East crowned a pair of champions at the Iowa Alliance Conference Tournament. Isaac Lamas pinned Efren Hirata of Ottumwa in 1 minute and 27 seconds to win at 132, while Braden Peters pinned David Wesley of Des Moines Lincoln in 36 seconds to win at 182. The Trojans finished 5th with 118.5 points. 
Fort Dodge won the meet with 254. East also got a second from Marion Norton at 106, a third from Ryan Strong at 145, and a third from William Clark at 152, and a third from Gianni Speller at 160. And here's a subheader. Northeast Iowa Conference Championships. Waverly Shellrock racked up 314.5 points to win the conference title Saturday in walk-on. Crestwood finished with 197. The Gohawks crowned 10 champions. Riker Graff, Alex Horniak, Zane Behrens, Ryder Block, Baz Diaz, Ethan Bibbler, Danny Diaz, Robert Poyner, McCray Haggerty, and Jake Walker. MVC Championships. Team standings. Number one, Lynn Marr at 233, Cedar Rapids Prairie, 214. Number three is Dubuque Hempstead at 184.5. Number four is Iowa City High at 170.5. Number five is Western Dubuque at 143. Number six is Cedar Falls at 132. Seven is Cedar Rapids Xavier at 101. Eight is Cedar Rapids Washington at 100. Nine is Cedar Rapids Kennedy at 91. Number 10 is Iowa City West at 90. 11 is Waterloo West with 81. 12 is Iowa City Liberty with 73. Number 13 is Dubuque Senior with 52. And number 14 is Cedar Rapids Jefferson with 45. Number 15 is Dubuque Wallard with 43.5. Now let's move on to our final article of the day, UNI adds Panther Legacy. Northern Iowa added 21 players, 17 high school prospects, and four transfers to the football program early signing day. However, as a flurry of offers go out to the 2024 prospects, the Panthers have not closed the book on the class of 2023. On Wednesday, Boderant Farrar linebacker John Powers committed to UNI as the 18th member of the Panthers high school recruiting class. A soon-to-be third-generation Panther, Powers described the chance to play for UNI as a dream come true. Grandma and Grandpa went to UNI, Powers said. Dad wrestled there. I also grew up in Cedar Falls until about 10 or so years old, so I'm pretty familiar with the area. Powers' father, Rich Powers, wrestled for UNI from 1988 to 1992 and earned All-American status three times as a Panther. When he graduated, Powers owned a share of the UNI career wins record, with, three, with 134 wins, including 54 falls. He received enshrinement into the UNI Athletics Hall of Fame in 2016. Given his family's history with the school, the younger Powers said UNI and Cedar Falls felt like a home for him on each of his visits. It was probably one of the best feelings I have ever experienced, Powers said. I was super excited. Everything kind of came into came full circle for me. I knew you and I is where I wanted to be. I used to go to Panther football games all the time, so committing to be a Panther just felt right to me. A talented wrestler in his own right, John said that his decision to pursue football came because he enjoys it the most and was the best fit for him. I did a lot of wrestling in this offseason, Powers said. I do have a love for wrestling, and that is the truth, but I would say my sophomore and junior year of high school is when I figured out that I could have an opportunity in football. Powers made 83.5 total tackles, 25 tackles for a loss and 6 sacks in his senior season at Bondurant Farver 
Farrar High School. He also averaged 40 yards per punt, according to the 6-foot-2, 220-pound prospect. UNI sees him as a linebacker at the next level, though he would be willing to lend his leg if need be. The best ability is versatility, Powers said. So having that punting piece might be able to help out if they need extra an extra punter. Wherever they really need me. After all, Powers said he told UNI offensive coach Rick Nelson all he needed was an opportunity the Panthers could offer him. He came to my school and I had a really good conversation with him, Powers said. I told him whatever opportunity that that they can give me is all that I need because I want to be a Panther. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, January 29th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. You can access our recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.